0: The New Testament reading is taken from Mark chapter 12 verses 28 to 34. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? This is the most important one, Jesus answered. It is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him more
1: questions. Our Old Testament lesson is from the book of Ruth in our Old Testaments. The first five verses of that book on page 267. If you're using that red Bible that we've provided you with, it would be good for you to keep that nearby throughout the meditation this morning as we'll make reference to it. Ruth 1, 1 through 5 on 267 of your Bibles. Let us hear God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Killian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. When you go to the bookstore and you look for something to read, either at the beach or at the mountains, whatever your preference, many of you will be heading on vacation this coming week, perhaps, school holidays. What are you going to look for? What genre? Or if you're like me and my wife, the question that's relevant is when we get a little break from the kids and we can actually watch a movie on Netflix, what category are we going to search through? Are we going to watch a historical film about a great man perhaps? Or maybe a happily ever after sort of fairy tale perhaps? I'm not sure if you realize this, but most of our Bibles are actually story. Did you know that? Now we've spent the last eight weeks in a letter, and letters are important for us, but they constitute just a tiny fraction of all of the literature in our Bibles. And given that we've spent eight weeks in this small section, I think it's time that we turn in these seven weeks that we have before Advent to, um, to a story. So what will it be? A romantic comedy? How about a historical drama, maybe with like a really muscular guy that comes in and saves the day? Maybe, a, maybe Frozen, maybe Cars. A Disney fairy tale is what you're looking for. I'm sorry, the book of Ruth, which we're going to study together, is actually none of these things. It has some elements of these things, but as we can see right from the beginning, it doesn't follow the typical patterns. This story, the book of Ruth, what we'll call Ruth's gospel, is instead a story about how God brings life out of death. And God does this, of course, in order to show his love to a woman that he has called to go through an experience of extraordinary suffering so my hope is that as we study this book from now till advent we will celebrate the amazing faith and the perseverance of the women that we find here in our story that we will be inspired men and women boys and girls all of us alike to imitate these women and that we'll be able to see our own sufferings and our sorrows as stories that will be redeemed by God for our good and for his glory, just like the one that we find here. And so this makes this story, Ruth's story, good news. It makes it gospel, the gospel according to Ruth. So let's look at the beginning here of Ruth's gospel in three ways. There is, in these short five verses, there is death before life. There are hints of life out of death And lastly, there's an implicit call for us to hold on for dear life. Life before death, or sorry, death before life, life out of death, and then holding on for dear life. So when you're watching a movie or you're reading a novel, if it's gonna get crazy later on, it's usually gonna start out pretty calm and sentimental, right, everything is, is going well. There's a cute sentimental scene at the beginning, everything's fine. And then comes a sudden crisis. And you knew this was coming. It was just a matter of time. Our story here actually starts out a little bit differently, doesn't it? There's no sentimentality. There's no cliched beginning and then you know, your sudden crisis. Instead, we immediately meet a family that is in crisis. There's also a town that's in crisis, a whole nation in crisis, but there is especially here a particular woman who is in crisis. And that is, of course, Naomi. Naomi and her neighbors are breadless in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. There's supposed to be bread there. But there is none, verse 1 tells us. Now probably Naomi's family is somewhat affluent. Uh, because they can pack up and they can move, at least for a time, to nearby Moab. And many Bethlehemites would not have been able to do that. The fact that they do go to Moab uh, in some ways seems like an act of unfaithfulness by Elimelech, the family patriarch, leaving the promised land for Moab in a time of crisis. Of course, they planned verse 1 to just go and live there for a while, the text tells us. But a while turns into a longer time by the end of verse 2. And then just three verses into our story, it happens. Tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. And this leaves, of course, Naomi in a foreign land with no husband. But it's interesting that the text is quick to add in verse 3 that, okay, Elimelech died. That's horrible. But she was left with her two sons. And in that culture, that was important. There's still a chance for a family legacy, for Naomi, for financial and for social security for her, to thrive, hopefully before too long, in the promised land. So then what happens next? Malon and Killian, Naomi's sons, they marry Moabite wives. And this, Orpah and Ruth, verse 4, this is actually forbidden by the Old Testament Mosaic law. They're not supposed to do this. Moabites are the ancient enemies of Israel. They worship false gods, and these false gods demand child sacrifices, among other horrible things. But they settle down, because these Moabite women have married Malon and Kilian, and they stay there 10 more years. Naomi may not have liked any of the decisions that the men around her were making. Elimelech goes to Moab. Her kids marry Moabites. But when there's no bread in Bethlehem, maybe you move somewhere else. And maybe Naomi starts to think, well, if if the land back home is not fertile, maybe at least these Moabite women will be fertile and I'll get the grandchildren that I've been longing for. I'll get with them a hope, I'll get a future, I'll get significance, a legacy. I will get life after death. 10 years pass, no children. Two hundred forty for our mathematicians, uh, cycles of barrenness for Ruth and Orpah. Women who in that culture are valued precisely for their ability to become mothers and someday grandmothers. Barrenness. And when it couldn't get any worse, it gets worse. Verse 5, both Malon and Killian die. And the hopefulness that we had at the end of verse 3, Naomi was left with her two sons, turns into hopelessness at the end of verse 5. Naomi is left without her two sons and her husband. Now there's another great sufferer in our Bible, isn't there? Who is that? It's Job, right? Job is a great sufferer. I would venture to say that Naomi may suffer worse than Job. Why? Because in the midst of Job's suffering, he still has his friends. Of course, they're saying stupid things and aren't helping him. But he has his wife as well. And Job is not an immigrant. And Job is not, let's face it, a woman in a patriarchal society. Naomi has it worse. One scholar says the deaths of Malon and Killian wiped out Naomi's life's work as a woman. When they were burying Naomi's sons, they were essentially burying Naomi too. And just like that, in the course of three short verses, the stage is cleared of all the men around. Naomi hoped for life after death for her family, but now there is nothing but death. What a depressing way to start a book. But secondly, there's not just death before life, but there are hints that out of death, life will emerge. Spoiler alert for us. This is going to get better. There is going to be life out of all of this death. We have hints right here in these pages. We can see subtle hints when we look at the front page. We can cheat as some of us do, be honest, when we're reading a novel and we look at the very back page to see how it ends and just make sure that we want to keep reading. We can look at the back page of Ruth and see hints. And of course, we that are Christian believers can keep turning the pages, and we can see that the Bible story does go somewhere good, doesn't it? Hints on the front page, what are they? Well, oftentimes, when a story starts with a bleak background and a tragic beginning, you can guess that things are going to get better. After all, why would there be a story there if it's only going to get worse? And in the Bible, when there's a bleak background, this is often an indication that maybe God is on the move. That he's up to something. There's a sort of once upon a time character to the beginning of this story, isn't there? Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. These were not good days. If you got your Bible open, you can look at the, the last verse of the Book before Ruth, and what does it say there? In those days, the days when the judges ruled, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. These were tough days, days of national crisis, days when you do what's right in your own eyes. Something must be up here. And when there's a famine in the Bible, for that matter, one that leads to migration, the wheels should start turning for us. We think of Abraham who went down into Egypt, we think of Joseph saving Israel in Egypt during the famine. Hints again that maybe God is doing something. How about the spoilers on the back page of Ruth? It's only four chapters long, so it doesn't take long to get there and spoil it. If all we do is peek at the end of Ruth and we see there David's name, we know that it's going to be, one, an important story, and two, it's probably going to be a good one. Because we are going to go, after all, from the crisis of the Judges, the first verse of this story, to the glory of King David, the last verse in this book. And King David, of course, is also from what town? From Bethlehem. The hints on the front page and the sneak peek at the back page help us, don't they, to keep turning the pages, even after the first five verses are a little bit bleak. You know J.R.R. Tolkien, don't you? The author of The Lord of the Rings, Fantasies. He is known for a, a big word. He made up a word. At least I think he did. And that word is eucatastrophes. There's a mouthful for us. Catastrophe, right? Something that goes awfully wrong. Euc is a prefix meaning good or thanksgiving something good is going to come out of this. Put them together and you have eucatastrophes. A story where there's an awful crisis, but that it suddenly and joyously turns good for us. Tolkien believed that all fairy tales are eucatastrophes. And Tolkien also believed that the true real-life Christian story was a eucatastrophe. It's not a tragedy, Though there is, as one person said, blood on the stage. It's a U catastrophe. And we get hints that though there's death before life in the story of Ruth, there is perhaps going to be life out of death. So death before life, number one. Life out of death, number two. And then lastly, hanging on for dear life. In Ruth and Naomi's story, in our Christian lives as well, We have death before life, don't we? And then we have hope of life out of death. And then out of that hope, we are called, are we not, to hang on for dear life, to keep turning the pages, to wait for the promised good, to explode onto the scene of the catastrophe of our fallen world, of the brokenness around us, of our sorrows when Naomi was in the midst of her catastrophe, burying her husband, and then her sons, and wondering what significance her life could possibly have. Surely she had some life after death moments in Israel's history to look back on, from which she could draw encouragement. As she thought about returning to Bethlehem, she could think back to her ancestors who were enslaved in Egypt, without hope in a future. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the Lord delivered them by the hand of Moses and brought them home. She could think about that. She could look back on barren Sarah bearing the promised son in her old age and Abraham looking on in astonishment. She could remember these stories. She could look back on God's judgment of the whole world, all of that death, and then Noah's family and their salvation in the ark, life emerging out of all that death. She could look back on Adam and Eve for that matter, who were told that on the day that they sinned, they would surely die, but who out of their death sentence were given the hope of new life. God provides animal skins to cover them and makes promises to them that they will have not just life, but glory if they hold on for dear life. And no doubt, as as Naomi suffers, she must be thinking about all of these stories in her history. Surely she wondered also whether the good God of all of these stories had any good left for her. Could she dare to hope? Could she muster up the courage through these evidences of God's prior goodness and grace to keep turning the page, to keep holding on for dear life, to keep clinging to God's promises? There's Naomi. But what about you? In the coming months, we'll be talking a lot about up and in and out and what that means for the life of our church, the three movement, the movements of a good church. We'll talk about how many churches and people struggle to move out and engage with the surrounding community with truth and mercy. Lots of churches also struggle to move in, to have real need-meeting and grace-giving and truth-telling relationships with one another. You know what I think? I think that part of the reason that it's so difficult to go out and to go in sometimes is that many of us, right here in the church, we go through seasons, don't we, in which we can't find the motivation to move out to others, to move in to others in the church. Why? Because we often feel, don't we, that this God who calls us to move outside the church with his good news, who calls us to love one another with goodness and grace, that maybe this God who says that he's so good and so gracious isn't so good and so gracious to us because we suffer. We have Naomi-like experiences of loss and sorrow, and sometimes we can hardly bear them. And we can barely move up toward God, much less move out and in toward others. I've had a few Naomi-like seasons in my life. And when I've been there, I didn't feel like going out or in. I didn't really feel like going up either. I didn't have the joy of my salvation overflowing into relationships of witness bearing. After church people had failed me, or failed my dear friends, I went through a season where I didn't have the courage to move toward Christians in risky acts of love. After God brought me through these difficult, bitter providences, I didn't even have the confidence in him for a season to move relentlessly up toward him, toward my heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. I was kind of out of the game a little bit. I'll bet some of you are there right now. I'll bet that most of us have been there from time to time. I know I have. And that means that all of us together need a fresh experience of God's goodness to encourage us to keep moving up, forever going to move out and in as well. To keep turning the page, to keep hanging on for dear life to the promises of God, which, let's face it, are hard to believe sometimes when we're suffering. And so, my hope is that. Ruth's gospel will help a little bit, and that it will even help this morning. Why should we keep turning the page when we're walking in Naomi's sandals? Naomi desperately wanted, and uh, sociologically and economically, she desperately needed descendants. As we sneak our peek at the back page of Ruth's gospel, and we see that she got her descendants all right, And as we keep turning the pages of God's gospel, we realize that her greatest descendant, the Lord Jesus, walked precisely in her sandals in suffering, although even more. Jesus was, like Naomi, a Bethlehemite. But he was the Lord Jesus from the true and better Bethlehem, heaven, the real house of bread, the place that rains down manna, bread for God's people when they are suffering in the desert. And Jesus was, as he said, the true bread from heaven himself. And he came down to the lower Bethlehem, the one in Palestine, and he came at a time of famine, a famine in this case of God's word, a 400 year famine where people hadn't heard from the Lord words of grace and truth. They had even forgotten that God's word was what would give them life. Many people forgot that God was good at all. Many people weren't even remembering anymore that it was bread from heaven that they really craved in the midst of their sorrows. Many people trying to stuff their hungry souls with power and wealth and influence and pedigree instead. And so what a dangerous place at a dangerous time that the bread of heaven comes down to feed his people. Jesus sojourned a long way from home as well. And while Naomi's sojourn in Moab took her away from home for 10 years, the Lord's sojourn was three times and more that long in this distant land. And at the end of Jesus's sojourn, there wasn't good news at the end of a famine like there is if you flip to verse six of chapter one for Naomi, news that bread is coming again. Instead, there was, for Jesus, hunger and thirst. Naomi's children are named, this is really weird, Malon and Kilian, which means roughly weak and sick and failing, pining, annihilation. A little bit different than Berg, right? Jesus, full of eternal life. He ends up weak and sick and failing and pining and even annihilated at the cross. If most of Naomi's sorrows were brought on by the wickedness of others, Jesus too, especially Lord of all, found himself handed over, didn't he? To wicked men, to be scourged, to be crucified. Naomi is left without the significant men in her life. Only a few women standing by. Jesus' friends fled. They abandoned him. They betrayed him. And only a few women stood by with him at the cross. When he was most alone. If Naomi felt that in all of this, God had turned his face of kindness away from her, Jesus from the cross cries out, "What, My God, why have you forsaken me? Calvary actually and not Naomi's temporary home in Moab was the most God-forsaken place in all creation. But then, in the story of Jesus as well, catastrophe turns into catastrophe. We turn the page and Jesus smashes through the wall of death on the third day. He surprised the women in his life with his appearances. And then eventually the men in his life with the good news. Their world is flipped upside down. Their weeping is turned into laughter. Their mourning is turned into dancing. Their paralysis in God's purposes is turned into praise, into a deep devotion to one another, and into energetic witness to the world around them. The difference in the disciples between the end of the Gospels and the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles is phenomenal. You and I, we have... In our Bibles, in the completed Holy Scriptures, we have the real and the final eucatastrophe right before us. We've turned the pages to the climax. And there is Jesus showing us that God, despite how it sometimes feels and appears, is good. And even more importantly, that he is good for who? For us. Even as we stand here in Naomi's sandals. Yes, there's blood on the stage of the drama of our faith But it's not a tragedy. It's got a happy ending, and it's got the most happy of all endings. And so the call for all of us who either stand today, or who have stood, or who yet will stand in Naomi's sandals in suffering and sorrow, the call for us is, will we trust this Jesus together? If you're in Naomi's sandals today, will you look up to your good Heavenly Father and see his smile with me? Will you rejoice when there's, there's bread aplenty, and when your cup runneth over? Will you give thanks and praise, and stop patting yourself on the back, and saying, what a good boy, what a girl, good girl am I? But give praise to your Father when things are good. But hold on for dear life, when you experience the breadlessness of breadless Bethlehem. Knowing that Jesus has come through, your famines, and your sorrows, and more. And right now, he is alive and well, reigning in the new Jerusalem for your good. For your good. Will you look through the tears of sorrow and believe that as you look to your heavenly father? Make him your dear life, and then hold on for dear life. He'll soon bring life that never ends and that only gets sweeter and sweeter. Gracious God, we pray that as we submit ourselves to your word, especially to this story in the next several weeks, that you would continue to unfold unto us your goodness, even when we don't feel it. Help us to love as you first loved us, but help us to have a tangible experience of that first love afresh. Forgive our sins. Set us on the firm foundation that is Jesus and send us, we pray, into the world with a great hope for our future. For Jesus has triumphed over death and hell and brings us with him on the last day to glory. Thank you for this truth, this gospel. And we praise your name because of it. In Jesus, our Savior's name, amen.